Hello and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined by Nick Sanderson, who's the Chief Executive of Audley. Nick, great to see you. Morning. Morning Thank Andrew. you for coming in. Now, it's been a busy couple of years for you, as with everybody else that sits in that same hot seat. You are building homes for older people. Audley has been a market leader in the UK for many years. And over the last, well, what was it, last year or so, you've had some amazing announcements with the likes of BlackRock. You've got your new Mayfield brand that's really going gangbusters. Why don't we start with what you're doing at the minute, what the focus is for anyone not familiar with Audley, and then we can come on to your fascinating story in a minute. Yeah, well, we are. We're really busy. Obviously, being in an operating business that's caring for older people, it's been a a day-to-day business been challenging over the last two years, managing through the pandemic. Mm. But what it's done, actually, if anything, has reinforced the need for what it is that we do, keeping people safe within their own homes, but giving them a whole range of support yeah. has kept them in a really good place. That's led to really high levels of demand, and that's led us to think that this is the time now really to push on. And, and, and But you're not running care homes, right, just to clear that up? No, all about independent living in independent homes, apartments, cottages, great quality housing, but think of it as a country house hotel where you've got bars, restaurants, bistros, spa, but most importantly, staff on call 24 hours a day to give you a great lifestyle, but also access to care and support if you need it. The whole objective being to provide a home that people can live in for as long as possible independently, which actually hugely reduces the risk or need for them to end up in a care home or acute bed in a hospital mm, just mm. where they don't want to go and this is one of the structural problems that exists in the uk health system this lack of of any focus on prevention yeah. and we spend heaps of money tens of billions of pounds clearing up the mess that we probably could solve if we were a little bit more proactive in Absolutely. addressing these things in advance completely right and it's been you know couldn't have been better evidence than over the last couple of years you know we started this pandemic with what was it, 25,000 older people being discharged from hospital beds out mm. into care homes because they wanted to free those beds up for potential COVID patients. Yeah. Why were they there in the first place? That's the big question you ask. And they're in there in the first place because the care home sector is frankly dysfunctional, unable to meet the needs. It's mm. never really progressed as it should have done and should be doing a different job. Yeah. But mostly because community living, caring for older people in the community has just never moved on to a point where People are properly supported. Well, let's take that elephant in the room question Mm. that some listeners will have at this point. And they'll be saying, well, look, Nick, the reason why the care home sector is such a mess is because Mm. it's uninvestable. Mm. People want to live in their own homes and you're barking up the wrong tree Mm. if you think people want bistros, spas and all of these things. So Mm. what's your response to that? Well, it's a different point. I mean, the care home sector is, and I say it's dysfunctional, it's dysfunctional because it's doing the wrong job. There is a really important job to do to look after people when they get old and frail. Mm. You have very complex needs. Dementia is an obvious example. Yeah, yeah. And it needs to reform itself to provide for higher dependency care for those sort of people. But everybody else, you rightly say, doesn't want to be in institutional care at all. They want to stay in their own home. Yeah. But the truth is most homes in the community, family homes, which are mostly under-occupied by older people, aren't fit for purpose to keep them safe for longer. It needs to be age-appropriate housing. Mm. And the luxury lifestyle part in our Audley villages that I described is about meaning that if you're going to live for that much longer, you want to have a better quality of life. You want Mm. to enjoy life. You want to live within a community that's active where you are 
engaged and not isolated and lonely, which is what most people are in their own homes in the community. Yeah, and that's a fair point. And I think I look at it through you know, my own experiences with the healthcare system over the last year, my wife being pregnant and just, mm. you know, just some of the really random and inconsistent ways you get treated by the health system. You turn up for a, a scan at a hospital and it's like turning up for a parole hearing. Yeah, you know? well, I'll come back another day and talk about the NHS. Uh, but I've worked in or around health and social care as an extension of real estate for 35 years. And I've seen the NHS good and bad. And I'm afraid a lot of it is the latter. Mm. So why don't we dial back then 35 years and mm. go into some of your story and how you've ended up here. And we can then talk about some of the recent deals you've been doing yeah. and what the future looks like. So how did you end up in this space? Because it's a niche within a niche within a niche, yeah, it is a bit. says the guy known for helping create the build to rent space and all the things that the Blackstock does in life sciences and modulus. So I, I'm, I'm the king of niches, right? And, yep. and, and you, you must be the supreme emperor. Um, so, so tell us, obviously... Uh, well, yeah, you're you, quite right. You, you didn't leave school wanting to run no. a, a housing with care brand, right? No, no. Well, actually, how Housing was always part of my growing up. But you're right. Did I think I'd be doing this? No, I didn't. I don't know what I thought. I thought I would probably, well, I actually wanted to be a vet. That was all my, my primary You didn't want to be on podcast when you were 18. No, 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 no. I, wanted to, I, wanted <laughs> to, I was going to be a vet up to about 60 when I realized that three A's in biology, chemistry and physics was probably beyond me because I didn't even like science. But no, I actually grew up in and around housing. Right? So my father was a house builder. He, like a lot of his generation, came out of the, Indian Army as an officer, had no idea what he was going to do. He himself accidentally ended up in housing and founded what is now Bovis Homes, in fact. So I sort of spent my childhood Saturdays and Sundays being driven around looking at sites. You know, our whole family was, my mother would have told you, that wherever we went, we had to divert to go and look at a site for a housing scheme. Mm. And it was inbuilt within me. But even then, I had no particular interest in it, as you don't as a teenager. And I didn't really think of it as a career. And like most kids, when privileged education that I had, I was assuming I was on a track to university and, I don't know, investment banking or something similar. And yeah. it, he never showed any interest in me and never promoted the fact that one day I'd be in house building. Until one day when I was just about to do my university selection, I was just going to go back and do Oxbridge. And um, he said, what are you doing that for? What a waste of time. You don't need to do that. You should come to work. You'll have three years working with me. You'll learn more about life and, and industry than you ever will at university. And uh, I did. So I started working with him, three or four years with him. And then, of course, I knew everything there was to know about housing, as you do at 22. And uh, <laughs> that's about the time that I thought I'd go off and start something. He actually... He'd moved on from Bovis then, had a new business, which then became Alfred McAlpine Homes, which he sold to Alfred McAlpine. Yeah. I didn't want to go into a big corporate like that. So I decided to go off and start on my own. Well, that's, that's an interesting narrative. I mean, I, I we often joke here that I'm the only person at Blackstock that doesn't have a degree. But it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's... it's, it's uh, that's, I, still, uh, I don't know whether you feel it. I was still, even now, you know, I mean, both <laughs> of my kids have gone through very, you know, great education. We both went to university. And I... I was really supportive of them doing it. And I, even now I have a slight chip on my shoulder, if I was honest. Well, I th yeah, well, I think that's, that's <laughs> fine. But, you know, you, you sort of just about proved yourself there. Can we? <laughs> <laughs> it's fair to say. Um, I, I suspect the schooling wasn't cheap either, was it? It wasn't bad, no. So what was the genesis then of, uh, of all this? So you're young 20s, you're striking out from your dad. 
what did that period look like? And what were some of the Uh, things that you learned then? Well, I'd just gone off and started and I was literally building like 10 houses a year or something, scratching around, trying to get going. And my sister's boyfriend, a wonderful guy called Andrew McDonald, who actually was at the same school as I was, but a few years older than me, he'd just qualified as a GP, a medic, and had just gone into general practice. And we were, as you were in those days, out in the pub one evening, I think it was probably, and we were having a conversation. He knew everything about medicine, just like I knew everything about house building. And we had a conversation about, wouldn't it be great to set something up, to do something generally as a business? But then we started talking about, well, what? And it was a simple conversation about what his life was like as a GP and the focus of his problems. And the biggest challenge, he said, was older people. He said he was doing a locum job down in Cornwall. Mm. And his surgery, he said, every morning was full of older people who had had falls, who were just lonely and isolated. And they were terrified of going into institutionalised care. And wouldn't it be good if we did something that did it better? And when is this? What year is this? We're talking? 88. Earlier than that, about 85. Yeah, 85. Wow. And not much has changed. No. Sadly... Do you know what? We decided that I said, well, my original reaction was, God, you know, I don't want to do anything to do with old people. You know, I know my grandma. That's the extent of my knowledge of old people. Mm. And he said, well, let's go and have a look. So we posed as, I think, probably grandsons or nephews of an old lady and went to visit a whole host of care homes in the area around where I lived, Tunbridge Wells. And it was the most depressing couple of days of my life. And as a young kid I just really had no idea of what institutionalized care and in those days most care homes were owned by small operators converted houses unfunded it was the emerging of the private care home sector and it was just profoundly depressing I remember coming home and just throwing my suit in the corner of the room because the smell of these places was so hideous and we sort of both then just said well look we've got two choices here we can walk away and say that would have been fun and not do it or Mm. try and do it better So we started and we then thought, well, that's good. We now need to raise some money. And we had another bit of luck. And most of the people you'll talk to on this have that moment of good fortune. And we met a young guy, not much older than us, you know, three I investors in industry as they were. And they were a genuine venture capital, private equity firm in those days, regional offices supporting local businesses. And we met a guy called Mark Gillespie who ended up very senior in uh, corporate finance, who was running a branch down in Brighton. And we showed him a business plan, which was about four pages of A4. And um, we just got on. And he said, yeah, all right. So he gave us some money. And we went and bought a couple of existing care homes, which we completely remodeled, and then set off to build new ones, which we always felt you had to do. They had to be purpose-built. And then we had five or six years of doing that. It was great. And where did that then evolve to in the 90s? How did you then turn well, that Well, we from- built uh, six and we sold them. We were approached and sold them to HCA, Hospital Corporation of America. Mm. We had just come to here, so they were doing big hospital projects then like Princess Grace and London Bridge Hospital. And they had a big investment in care yeah, homes I mean, in the Yeah, the people that owned the Portland. All yeah, the- yeah, 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 exactly. And they backed a care home business in the States, which had done well. They wanted to get into it in the UK. So they bought our first half dozen and that gave us the capital to go on and grow. So we then did another program, about 20. And then we were approached by PPP, AXA Healthcare, as it now is, and uh, sold out. 
So sold out in 91. And, you know, I was at an interesting stage. You know, my kids were young, just starting at school, had a bit of time. But I really wanted to take the business to the next generation. I thought care homes, we'd seen a lot of people moving into our care homes who didn't need to be there, who could have stayed independent yeah. had they had the right level of support. So uh, we had already launched a housing model, which was next to our care homes, we would build some independent housing and give people the choice of living in a bungalow apartment of their own, mm. but supported by the care home. And I'd seen from that, I'd been to the States and looked at other examples of it and just thought we're missing out in the UK. There's an opportunity to do a full housing model without the care home, but offering equivalent levels of support to people if they needed it. And uh, yeah. so I started Audley in the early 90s. And why do those countries have such a burgeoning sector and we don't. I mean, accepting mm. that the US obviously has a huge amount of scale just because you can print your own land. Yeah. There's obviously many, many more people. But countries like New Zealand, which aren't anywhere near that sort of size, have a much more progressive approach to everything. They have a retirement act. Yeah. They have all sorts of different things within their statute that enable this. And culturally, they're probably a lot more aligned with England anyway. They are. And it's a good question. You know, people often say to me, is it something that's just the British are different? They don't want to live in communal living as when they get older. They're not. We're not different. It's much more a supply side thing, to be honest. The chance meeting of Andrew and I that night in the pub brought together an operator, effectively, or a clinician mm. and a house builder. And we had, therefore, we were committed from the start to being both developer and operator. Well, that's a rare combination in the UK because, let's be frank, house builders like building housing and they're quite simplistic in their approach. Yeah. And they don't like operation. You know well enough from the build-to-rent sector. I mean, they should have been the natural creators of the build-to-rent sector in the UK, mm. but how many of them have actually embarked on it? Very, very few. Because, frankly, in the UK, you build houses, you sell them and you move on. And a lot mm. of house builders have said to me, you know, well, you know, really interesting, but don't really want to get involved in operation. Similarly... The operators, care home operators and healthcare operators, don't understand development, particularly house building and the like. So we just happened in that chance meeting to have a coincidence of somebody, a pair of us, who were happy to do operational management of real estate assets in quite an intense way, delivering care as well. Yeah, There are very few other people who can do it, that combination of people who are willing to do it. And I think that's why the build to rent here has been so slow, is the same point, that operating real estate assets is quite a rare thing in the UK, particularly when it comes to something as complex as ours. So I see it much more as a supply side failure than a demand side. The demand, I can tell you from our sales offices around the country, is very high. All they want to do is see product. Mm. But it wasn't there. And if it wasn't there, they weren't asking for it. So what now I think the sector's scaling up, you'll see a massive expansion and a combination of developers and operators are being formed. But how do you make it work? That's the simple mm. question, right? Because in a landscape where housing has been politically supported in the UK for decades, you know, we mm. hand out free money to house builders. Yep. It's a relatively quick and easy way to recycle capital. Mm. Whereas what you're doing is tricky, it's complicated, it's fraught with all sorts of operational challenges, and you've yeah. got to stay in for a long time. You do, and that's the other element. If it's a supply-side problem because of the lack of skill set, development and operation, the other side of it is capital. So to attract capital into a sector that, as you rightly say, could 
alternatively, bear in mm. mind if you badge it as real estate capital, could alternatively put it in previously into relatively clearly understood models, be it logistics or offices or retail as it was, which then has, because of the weight of capital and the shortage of supply, moved to slightly more operational assets like build to rent or student Yeah, housing. I mean, there's a question about how much more yield compression we can see in logistics and in Absolutely. student housing. Yeah, but you know, those are relatively straightforward. There are established investment models. Well, exactly. So the, the question Nick, is, is, is why would I invest money in Audley exactly. when I can invest money in Unite? I've got higher density. I've got none of the operating aggro that I have. Mm. Um, I'm up and done in a year if I'm using yeah. MMC. And I don't have to worry about all of the problems that my customers are going to have. Because, I mean, students have a few issues here and there, but mm. they're not anywhere near the complexity of the issues that you must have to face. That's exactly right. And yet our market is, what, 10 times the size of the student market, potentially? Mm. Um, well, I, guess, I mean, that's the fundamental fundamental, is the one area where the customer base is absolutely guaranteed to grow. Absolutely right. And it's growing all the time, not just because of demographics, because of longevity. You know, things like we're doing are keeping people living longer, better quality lives. So the numbers are just vast. They also own a trillion, two trillion pounds of housing assets. So they have the capacity to provide for that great quality lifestyle. So simple answer is the scale of the opportunity is huge. The other problem is finding platforms like ours that have got the skill set and the experience to do it and to take your point, to keep them safe, reputationally to keep them safe. And that's been a big break because I think investors would say, you know, there's a massive investment looking to get into our sector, truthfully. You've seen it yourself. The challenge is them finding a platform that can get it to scale because the other point is it takes time. It takes yeah. time. And it takes private equity type risk profile to build schemes and sell them. But what you're creating is very long-term stable income from the operating businesses going forward. Yeah, And the, it's the match between, I need short-term capital to get through the development phase to build these, to create long-term stable income. Long-term stable income, we could sell 100 times over because every pension fund, life fund in Europe is looking for stable, and in our case, inflation-linked income. Yeah, But that needs scale. You know, they don't want to play unless they can deploy vast amounts of capital now we orderly are getting to a stage now where we've got that scale to do it mm. and a production line behind it to generate more and more and more we've seen the beginnings of it sort of investors coming into our sector for the long-term investment NatWest pensions axa there's more and more coming in you'll see that happening increasingly i, mm. I mean in terms of pipeline again you've got a tremendous pipeline across the UK, and that is ultimately what capital is going to be chasing. You've got a 2,500 unit pipeline with Audley Platform and then Mayfield. Mm. I mean, let's talk about Mayfield, which is your other yeah. almost diffusion brand. And you've got another couple of billion pounds of pipeline with the Mayfield brand, yeah. which you're on site now with in Watford. What's that going to bring to the market? What problem is that solving, That the main premium brand? Yeah, really, really interesting. So Audley... I should say by design, maybe more by accident. It was always a premium brand. You know, I started in that place. Our healthcare business was in that space. It's a response to growing up with Bovis Homes yeah, around you. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, <laughs> if anyone's seen an Audley village or has a relative living in them, and there's more It and looks more very different from a Bovis home. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, they're great. <laughs> I mean, they are very high quality. They're in great residential locations. We've got some fabulous schemes. Everybody's surprised. You know, I, I always say that, 
the ultimate judgment of my success will be when people stop being surprised when they walk into one of our places. Because the moment they walk in and go, oh, this is unusual. Why? I didn't think old people had things like this. Mm. And they are. The orderly villages are great. But average selling price around the UK from Yorkshire to Devon to Kent is about half a million pounds. As you know, we're selling apartments in Clapham for 2.2 million plus. Mm. And it's therefore restricted to people who have high-value homes that they're downsizing from and a decent income to pay the charges. I've particularly wanted to hit that more affordable market, more affordable in the sense of still people who are homeowners but living in, frankly, houses closer to the average house price in locations where there's a big density of them. And that's what Mayfield and the scheme in Watford, the first of them, is about addressing, where for... £350,000, which in Watford means you're selling a three-bed semi for four fifty, say. Releasing some equity on the way through, helping your family probably, passing down through the generations. And then with a flexible management charge and deferred management charge, you can be paying £250 a month. And you have all the facilities that you would have in an orderly. So downstairs you've got bars and restaurants and a village hall with activities and a pool and gym. And support available 24 hours a day. And that's a pretty good proposition. And that, interestingly, we're seeing with Mayfield higher levels of demand. And they're coming for the right reasons, actually, which is not just about worried about their future as they age, but the fact they want to come and enjoy themselves. Mm. Now, these are the guys who cruise, you know, on all-inclusive cruises or travel. And, and they are really engaging, interesting funny people who, you know, may well have been a bricklayer who got lucky in the lottery of life, ended up owning a house. Yeah. But has never had this sort of offer before. And we're really excited about Mayfield. And frankly, the scale of opportunity for Mayfield is two or three times what it is for Audley. Well, Audley will still be very important to us and we'll do a couple of year, hopefully forever. But Mayfield really is something that's significant. Mm. And what needs to happen politically for this to mm. become more accepted and more supported because, I mean, we've seen this and the market saw the fight that my team had down in Walton on Thames mm. with LNG mm. when we were battling against the council who said in refusing the application for the LNG Guild Living site that it would make the town centre unviable, which, yeah, no. you know, we consulted the uh, Andrew James Teacher Law Bible. Um, we looked on page 24 and it said, well, that smells like a contravention of the Equalities Act. Yeah. So we then went into a bit of a pitch battle with the local MP, who luckily was Dominic Raab. Yep. Uh, and through our work, we turned that into a consent and the three subsequent refusers also followed like dominoes. But the point was, I suppose, that this council felt that they were okay and, and able to do that. And that, sadly, Nick, is reflected of wider political sentiment, isn't it? Yeah. And by the way, I'm very grateful for your efforts because it did a lot, actually, to break down some of the barriers because it became such a public debate. Well, yeah, we knew that was going to happen. And it was a bit of a debate with everyone because, obviously, what we do as a business, you know, we're helping people raise money, we're helping people with their advocacy and public relations. And sometimes you have to measure risk, which is what you do day to day. And, mm. and what was interesting about that whole episode was that what we got everybody to consider wasn't just, well, what's the downside risk of having a public spat with the foreign secretary, mm. who he still was foreign secretary at the time. The point we got everybody considering was, if we don't do this, what happens? Yeah. And if we don't do this, then you've got a precedent which says it's okay to refuse these schemes on some 
nonsense, absolute bullshit line of viability when the town centre's already dead. I mean, yeah, it was, it's just, I and if someone said, well, look, you know, we can't build homes for people who can't walk or we can't build homes for Jews or yeah. people from a particular background, <laughs> you'd be, yeah. there'd be protests on the streets, right? Absolutely. But, but, but yet we're allowed to well, discriminate really on age. Yeah, exactly. Your point and the politics of it is all around that, actually, which is older people are not considered to be politically or socially or economically significant. They're just not. And it's because, well, they haven't been and they've never had a lobbying, you know, when they are, that's slightly trivialised, you know, the principle of the pensioners groups and stuff. Mm. And this concept that you get to 65 and therefore you lose all economic, social and political relevance is something that's held back so much of what should be happening to progress better alternatives for them. So the response of Walton Council, which is, you know, we don't want all these old people in the town centre. In any way, they bring no economic viability to the place. It's just completely nonsense. And the strange thing is, a lot of the people who would have been saying that would have been councillors in Walton who were probably 65 plus themselves. And it's because older people never look at older people the same. We hear it all the time. People say, I'm not ready to move into any of our villages. I'm not old enough yet. And you say, well, why? How old are you? And they say, well, I'm 75. So, well, when is old, old? What really it means is old people look at old people as people who are vulnerable and frail. Mm. They define them as such. Our maxim as a business has always been they are just us but older, right? That's all it is. So they're, yeah. they're thinking, their thought processes, you know, I'm, you know I'm, clearly I'm 35, 40 years older than when I started in business, but my mindset is exactly the same as mm. is yours at your age Anybody else is theirs. And it's because of the fact that they are marginalised, that they haven't had a loud voice, has meant that government policy has never looked. What was the... Erwin Mitchell did a piece on planning strategy around the UK. They renewed it about two years ago. Less than, I think it was 8% of all local authorities in the council, only 8% had specific policies around housing and ageing population. They had policies for every other key worker, whatever form of housing... They had nothing in their local strategy that addressed the issue, and yet they represent 25% of most local populations. Mm. Now, why? Because they don't shout and scream. They're considered to vote to sound a pattern. They don't do that. I think that's changed, and I think the pandemic has changed. In answer to your question, what needs to happen? I think it's already happening. And I think the pandemic has done it because partly because when the review comes out on the pandemic, we will find that probably over 60% of the people who died were older people who were left exposed because they weren't in the right sort of accommodation. So what we've seen, you know, I chair our trade body, ARCO, we've lobbied hard. And what we've got now is a commitment to a task force, which is being set up first meetings next month which is specifically to address this issue of why do we have a shortfall in supply of the right sort of housing for older people? And it's coming from two directions. And it's a combined effort from the Department of Health and Social Care and the Department of Leveling Up, Michael Goh's department, specifically to address the two issues, which is firstly, housing. Why is so much housing in the UK under-occupied? when we have a desperate shortage of family housing, so, you know, 2.6 million empty bedrooms every night. Mm. So how can we stimulate people to downsize? 
simple answer is to create the right product to be attractive enough for them to downsize. Well, and also the right tax structures yeah, as well. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. It may well be an outcome from the task force. The other, though, is the health and social care end, which is how did we end up with 25,000 old people in hospital beds who shouldn't have been there? Why are the care home sector, why is it incapable of providing mm. the right accommodation viable sectors? But that problem there is that's a much bigger problem than housing. That's the mindset shift that needs to reflect Europe where we say to the population of the UK, actually, if you've got a problem, don't go to hospital. Hospital yeah. should be the last place you go. Yep. Try and get that problem fixed through yep. your pharmacist, your optometrist, your dentist. Or technology. Or technology. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's- I, I completely right. And you said it earlier. The whole balance has to be to shift to prevention. And older people is really easy. I know it sounds flippant to say it. If you stay in a dark, failing expensive to maintain family home which you've lived in for 30 years which desperately needs investment you are at more risk of a fall or of isolation related illness which is very common than you are if you move into age-appropriate accommodation with the right level of support where you can be triaged right at that moment at that time so you can be responded to and looked after that is such an obvious thing and that is key to the prevention agenda anyone who moves in with us has an assessment when they move in. It's a health and well-being assessment. We sit with them not just about blood pressure, but about what can we do to keep you more physically active, more socially stimulated, mm. give you a better life. If you do all of that and you live in the right accommodation, you will have a better outcome and you will not put yourself at risk of what you really don't want, which is ending up in institutional care. Mm. So, I mean, to close then, Nick, how does this result in better outcomes for investors. What is the message there? Because this is a complex market. Investors mm. sometimes shy away from that complexity. Mm. But as we've discussed, there is a pretty straightforward argument around the growing demand here. And we have a wall of institutional capital now looking at the hunt for yield, now looking at, at the fact that other sectors are becoming quite pricey. The relatively nascent scale of this sector surely presents some pretty significant opportunities. It's a huge opportunity. And in answer to what next and why, I mean, if I, let's put it this way, if I was a big investor looking to deploy capital in this space, what I'd have to look for, and you will expect me to say this, is experience and a platform which has been doing it. And that's a challenge for us because there aren't enough of them about, to be honest. Most of them are already either owned by institutional capital or are, you know, just emerging businesses. So you need to have somebody who's been there and done it. And I'd like to think that we're sort of at the front of that queue. But then I think you've got to think of the two types of capital required because there's a development piece here, which has always been dominant. Because if you're starting a new business, all of the risks look like development risk. I've got to buy land, build things, sell them. And that's a PE type you know, high return sort of capital requirement. But what you create at the end of it is fabulously secure long-term income from the operating of the assets. And that is not the same. That's about long-term patient capital. And the problem's been in the past that expensive capital looking to get through the development phase is short-term in its nature and doesn't look at the long-term income. So we've needed to get to a place where there's the opportunity for those who deploy long-term patient capital to get access to those long-term income flows. 
and we'll be willing to take the development risk to get there because of the scale of the opportunity. Yeah, and yeah. we're getting there now. You know, we're in a place now where our operating platform and our long-term stable income now is sufficiently attractive to longer-term patient capital. And as you know, we work with development partners on development phase two anyway. So I think we're getting to that place now. We just need more and more of us to do it. And I think you will see a massive expansion in this sector. I would say it because I've been saying it for many years. Maybe I'm just naive. Mm -hmm. But I do think it'll be the biggest growth sector in real estate for the next 25 years well let's hope so nick sonson pleasure to see you always great to catch up and some amazing things happening with Audley, with mayfield some great relationships building there and let's hope that the arco task force cuts through and of course we'll be continuing to champion this sector as we've been doing for the last three or four years so thanks again nick sonson boss of Audley. i'm andrew teacher from blackstock consulting please do subscribe to PropCast by searching PropCast on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, any of your podcast platforms. Do review us, do share it with your teams. And if you'd like to suggest anybody for future episodes, please just do get in touch and drop us a line. But thanks very much for listening and we'll see you soon.